The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everyone. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's episode is part of a series on the archaeology of pipelines. Uh, pipelines, as we have mentioned in previous programs, account for probably the largest single proportion of archaeological site recovery and documentation in the United States. It is a an industry that has incorporated all elements of the regulatory and private sector communities, and it has become an ever-increasing component of archaeological data recovery, retrieval, and reporting to the public. It's probably accounting for, and some of my colleagues who are, who are experts on this, probably accounting for more than 50 to 60 percent of all the archaeological work that goes on in North America and certainly in the United States. In this program, we are going to bring together uh, members of the regulatory, uh, not the regulatory component, but rather the um, private sector component to discuss how archaeology and the nature of pipeline work has changed over the course of time. My co-host on this program is Dr. Chris Bergman. Chris is a principal archaeologist with uh, URS Corporation. I guess that needs to be changed to AECOM, URS Corporation. And he received his PhD in prehistoric archaeology from the University of London. Chris is now responsible for cultural resource management for the pipeline sector of this very large company. My private sector uh, uh, compadres in this discussion are Carol Weed, who is a senior project manager at Vaness Hangen and Bruslin in uh, White Plains, New York. And she has extensive experience in a variety of different types of archaeological venues and settings and has worked very extensively in the pipeline sector, especially in its early days and ongoing today. Don Weir is the president of uh, Commonwealth Cultural Resources Group, which is now one of the largest private sector corporations in archaeology in the United States. And Don has been involved in pipeline work for uh, upwards of 30 years 
and has uh, in, in many ways shaped the nature of the industry uh, as a member of and a founding member of his own firm and as one of the pioneers in the performance and practice of pipeline archaeology. Uh, thank you all for participating in the program. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I want to start uh, this program by uh, laying out a couple of very fundamental precepts that I think most of you know if you've been listening to the program over the past two or three years. And one, of course, is that uh, regulation is a very major element of uh, undertaking archaeology in the public and private sector. That type of regulation varies with respect to the nature of, we call, of what we call an undertaking, which is the construction of a particular project and how it is potentially going to impact a cultural resource or an archaeological site or a historic structure. And as the bureaucracy of this country has become increasingly complicated, certainly so has the nature of the regulatory agency. And there are a variety of different type of agencies whose charges reflect the types of landscapes and the types of properties that these undertakings are going to be constructed on. So that, for example, the United States Forest Service is, as you might think, responsible for forest projects. The Bureau of Land Management, uh, which is largely concentrated in the western United States, is in charge of large sectors of federally held lands in which archaeology is performed. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is concerned with rivers. And finally, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission uh, is the topic of today's talk, and they regulate pipelines. And as I said earlier, they have become an increasingly dominant player in the regulatory and archaeological environment over the past, certainly, 15 to 20 years. At this point, I would like to get into some of the elements of what regulation and what the nature of archaeological work is in association with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And I will excuse, uh, apologize in advance if we use some of the acronyms that we often use in this program. We try to keep it down, and my colleagues know that we need to keep it down. But when, when they say FERC, they mean the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. So I want to pass the program hosting and this first segment over to my colleague, Chris, uh, Chris Bergman, who is the co-host for the project. Chris, why don't you uh, set the stage for what FERC does and how we want to look at the archaeological compliance in terms of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Uh, thanks, Joe. Uh, I, I guess the, um, the, the the discussion that we want to uh, lead off with is is really um, about the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission itself uh, as a lead agency. Uh, as you indicated, it, it is a lead a agency for many, but but not all pipeline projects. There are certainly pipeline projects that fall under the purview of, for example, the United States Army Corps of Engineers. And I think one of the things I'd like our discussants, uh, Carol and Don, to cover uh, uh, the first part of the show is um, how the FERC's approach to NEPA compliance, specifically uh, as it relates to the National Historic Preservation Act, uh, for pipelines uh, in particular differs from the approaches developed by other federal lead agencies. So, 
Carol and, and Don, maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, NEPA and the National Historic Preservation Act itself, a little bit about the process, and then talk about the way uh, FERC regulates and provides guidance uh, for pipeline projects under their um, jurisdiction. Carol? Uh, <laughs> thanks very much, Tom. Um, I think that one of the interesting aspects of working with FERC as the lead agency is that um, they have traditionally taken an integrated approach um, to um, cultural resources. And what I mean by this is that they take the spirit of the National Historic Preservation Act um, seriously. And they look at, and they are willing to look as, as an agency at um, 100% of their area of potential effect, all of the areas that are going to be affected by the project, um, and issues like cultural landscapes, uh, sites that extend outside of rights-of-way, um, integrating the cultural resource site location information with that that's being provided by other uh, resource specialists in terms of the pipeline corridor studies, the wetlands people, the threatened and endangered species folks. And they bring it all together into one cohesive package that really allows um, them as the review agency and others to understand the potential impact not only on uh, cultural resource sites, but also on the other uh, resource categories that are affected by uh, pipeline projects, which sometimes do have a large footprint uh, and wide areas of disturbance. Carol, maybe if we could elaborate a bit, you could talk about some of this integration and what I believe is real innovation on the part of the FERC uh, as it as it you know is expressed through archaeological studies. And I'm thinking, you know, the fact that they emphasize geomorphological uh, investigations very early on, and and maybe you know paint a picture of um, you know how this integrated approach uh, you know takes place on a on a pipeline project, because obviously we have linear features, you know, the pipeline corridor itself, but then we also have, you know, features not on every project, but, but certainly on some that are, you know, more focused geographically, like a compressor station. Uh, maybe you could, or Don, the both of you, talk a little bit about, you know, the kinds of things that are uh, in the Office of Energy Projects uh, for FERC's guidelines uh, in terms of addressing uh, the impacts that you just alluded to. Well, I, I you know, I agree with, with Carol that, the you know, the, the FERC process is, you know, the gold standard of, of the industry. You know, they have set out you know, steps that you need to go through to, you know, meet NEPA uh, for, for those projects. And, and you know, I think it's, it's, you know, integrated and it's innovative and it works for, for you know, this type of projects. I've had several, you know, um, pipeline companies that are not involved in FERC-regulated projects say to me, you know, we want to know what the rules are. We, you know, we're willing to follow the rules, 
but the rules need to be clear. And and the neat thing about FERC is that the rules are very clear. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, non non regulated pipelines have, companies have said to me, you know, we would welcome you know uh, something like FERC for us because it lets us know what the rules are, and and, and we're willing to follow them. Uh, you know, where these pipeline companies get in trouble is when the, the rules aren't very clear. And, you know, they're, they're, they don't have a process to go through. And with Don, the and these, rules. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Hmm? And with the first rules, what you have is consideration of not just the, that pipeline trench, but the workspace that's associated with laying that pipe, you have consideration of the access roads that allow you to get to the pipeline corridor. Um, you have to take into consideration uh, meter station locations and compressor station locations. Um, yeah. Storage yards. Yep, yep. storage yards. Um, anything that's going to any location on the landscape that's going to be affected by the project comes into play. And FERC has a very strict system for accounting for all of those elements that actually makes it very simple for the archaeologists, for the architectural historians, uh, for the ethnographers, um, for the geomorphologists, all of those sub-disciplines that come together as part of the cultural resource group, bringing the entire picture together so that every base is covered. Um, and it also, on the part of the participants, makes it an incredibly exciting research effort, even though we're usually working 10 days a week, 50 hours a day to try to get the projects done. <laughs> that, that's correct. And, and, and you, it, it becomes very exciting. And, and, and you know, if, if you're involved, and I'm, I'm sure Carol's more involved these days than, than I have, though I spent you know, 14 years working for an engineering company, is that if you look at the, the whole NEPA process, the, you know, the cultural resources are only one of several. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's other resources out there that are important, and, and FERC does a, an excellent job of balancing the needs for, for all the resources out there, not only the archaeological and historical. Uh, you know, they're looking at wetlands, you know, they're looking at... Uh, um, you know, forest areas, all the all the other resources that have to be considered before one of these pipelines can be built. And we will be back with our special discussion on the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and its relationship to archaeology along some of the major pipelines across the United States right after these words don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself 
every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Get ready for some lively discussion on Barely Controlled Radio with Jeff Reed. From sports to relationships to current events and more, pretty much anything is on the table. Besides being a place kicker for the Super Bowl champion Pittsburgh Steelers, Jeff Reed is also a journalist, blogger, and opinionist. And he's ready to talk to you and tackle the issues that you've been wanting to talk about. Tune in to Barely Controlled Radio every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at Voice America TRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Shulden, Ryan, and we're back on a very special segment in a multi-series, in, in a multi-episode series on the archaeology of pipelines, and we are devoting a tremendous amount of attention to it because of the increased amount of archaeological data that is procured over the course of pipeline work. We are honored to have with us three major specialists in the area of pipeline archaeology, my co-host Chris Bergman and uh, private sector practitioners Don Weir from Commonwealth Cultural Resources Group and Carol Weed from VHB here in the New York area. Um, I was especially struck by the fact that both Don, Carol, and, and, and Chris as well were talking about the fact that over the course of time, and it's not really all that much time, the regulatory and compliance process has been very, very tightly streamlined, and it shows sort of a, a, a progressive understanding of what the statutes are and how to follow the rules. Chris, because you're an expert on all of these elements of the process, why don't you uh, take it from here and uh, develop that theme a little bit? Okay, Joe, thanks. Um, Yes, I I think one of the uh, main things that came up in our uh, opening conversation was that, uh, you know, the FERC guidelines do a very good job not only in integrating all aspects of archaeological and cultural resource inquiry because, of course, they they are interested in above-ground resources as well, particularly when there are viewshed issues. Um, But uh, they've also removed, I think, in in having these guidelines, a lot of ambiguity uh, about the process, which, um, as uh, both Carol and Don noted, is, is very much appreciated not only by uh, folks who are in consulting, but uh, I've actually heard shippos say how much they, uh, you know, appreciate the um, the detail uh, that exists in FERC guidelines. 
Obviously, guidelines develop over a period of time, and since uh, all of us on this call have had many, many years in cultural resource management, and particularly for the pipeline industry, we've been able to track how things have changed over time. And some of these changes are, are the way that pipelines are designed and routed, um, there are changes in the way we collect our field data. Uh, you know, basically, I think all of us at one point were pacing out shovel test um, intervals. Uh, now, of course, we have GPS units. Um, often we work from mapping. Uh, now we work from waypoints. Uh, one other thing that we've seen happen over time is that as this technology is developed, and made things uh, not only more accurate but more efficient, we've seen uh, a lot of increase in uh, the importance of scheduling, which is which has always been very important on pipeline projects. But uh, today I would say that uh, a lot of projects are proceeding at a faster and faster pace. So, Carol, I'd like to start with you and maybe uh, if you could talk about some of these points, how how things have changed in terms of the industry, you know, designing and routing a, a pipeline, uh, how things have changed in terms of the way archaeologists, um, you know, accommodate uh, the way the industry uh works from an engineering perspective, and then maybe also talk about the challenges that we certainly all face in maintaining quality and accuracy, in other words, living up to the FERC guidelines um, uh, in our work when we have, you know, scheduling that is um, moving at a faster pace. So, Carol, if you might speak to some of those things, and then uh, we could move over to Don. Okay, very good, Chris. Um, I think that I'm going to really hearken back um, to the mid-1980s um, and going to probably about uh, 1995. Um, and during that time frame, FERC, I think, was in evolution with how they were approaching the development of the development of the lines, literally the development of the routing uh, for the pipelines. And at that point in history, what they were asking the provider, um, the, the, you know, the proponent for that particular pipeline to do was to present to them a series of almost oh, golly gee, was fully realized route mapping, which in a lot of cases had never been subjected to any sort of assessment uh, prior to the submission. Uh, and they saw that that approach was not working well because there were so many subsequent changes in the pipeline routings to take into consideration issues like archaeological sites, um, threatened and endangered species locations, wetlands. And so in that 10-year period from about 1985 to about 1995, what you saw was a very persistent shift on the part of the FERC away from that fully realized line development to something that was almost designing it with a team in the field. Um, there were some uh, sponsor companies who literally took what were called footprint teams into the field where they had sketched out, as it were, a pipeline routing and then said to their technical specialists, 
Um, how are you going to approach this? What are the problems in this segment? Does it look like we're going to have to make a shift? And then, after that initial sort of footprint experience was completed, the engineers went back, modified the lines, and presented that modified line to the FERC, and FERC bought into this approach. Um, I think that that's been one of the great things about working with FERC over over 30 years has been that they are amenable to workable solutions that expedite the process. And, and I would add, I would oh, add, sorry. Carol, that, that not only are they amenable to workable solutions, but I think they are also, as I've indicated in our uh, in the early part of the show, uh, also very innovative as well among agencies. They they seem to think about, as you suggested, uh, you know, the problem holistically, and have brought into their guidelines. And certainly at a time when not many people were thinking this way, uh, you know, means to address, for example, deeply buried sites through geomorphological investigations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is Don. I, I agree both with Carol and Chris. One of the interesting things is, is early, I've been doing pipelines since the late 70s. And early on, um, you know, as Carol indicated, you know, that there would just be a straight line on the map. And then... Um, <laughs> You know, it, it would change when the engineers got involved, and then it would change again when the construction people started looking at it, because we've, we've had cases during that period where, you know, it would be engineered, and, you know, the construction people would come in and say, we can't build it. We can't build mm-hmm. it. So, but now it, it's more, you know, when it gets to us now, you know, it, it's pretty much aligned unless there's a you know, major site or something found that, that's going to be built, and it can be built, which is really different than the early days. Mm-hmm. What about the time presses? You know, it's a, it's a, for us, you know, for practitioners on the ground, you know, it's an ever-increasing or decreasing schedule to get these things done. The first, you know, major multi-state pipelines I did took five years. You know, you had luxury mm-hmm. of, of doing one or two years of, you know, uh, site discovery surveys or phase one surveys. You, you spent the winters analyzing the artifacts, making recommendations for evaluation studies of phase twos. And, you know, you maybe did those in, in, in third year, or even a fourth year, and then if there's any, you know, excavation or mitigations, you would do them in the fifth or sixth year, and and, and you know, and that was doable. Now, you know, we're we're having major, you know, two three hundred mile lines, um, wanting us to do the discovery surveys in, in one year or less, and um, you know, we no we no longer have the luxury of you know sitting back and spending a lot of time analyzing these sites and making recommendations, we have to start writing these reports the the day we start the field work. And, um, you know, there's a lot of long hours to to get that information back back to the people to, to, you know, evaluate these sites. And and it's even going quicker and quicker. This last year, you know, we we would have three or four months to to, to get a major pipeline done. And, And our report three or four months after the end of construction. It can be done. It takes a lot of resources to do it. 
I agree, Don, and I, I think that, um, you know, this is a, a theme that's always been very important to me, that um, I, I think these kinds of projects, uh, which are incredibly detailed and uh, very holistic, they're, they're, they're looking at lots of different things, you know, sites that are buried, you know, at the near surface or even on the surface, uh, you know, above ground resources, deeply buried sites, uh, cultural landscapes, uh, traditional cultural properties. I, I think this really requires uh, the CRM practitioner, and certainly at the level of a pr- principal investigator, to absolutely be a, on the top of their game. Um, it, it's not a a process that is uh, very forgiving in terms of you know trying to meet a demanding schedule and keep all of these pieces. Uh, moving forward and, and most importantly, getting, getting data that's accurate and meaningful and, and adequately addressing, uh, the nature of, of the FERC, uh, guidelines. I, I've always believed, uh, and certainly in more recent times that, uh, you know, a principal investigator in cultural resource management, uh, engaged certainly in large pipeline projects needs to be, uh, among the best of the best. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, something that just to, you know, that we're starting to do just recently is no collection strategies um, on sites in the Midwest. I know it's very common out West, but pipeline companies are asking us to do that. So, you know, they, they don't have to deal with the problem of collections later on and long-time curation. And and if you do that strategy, then you have to have, you know, a team in the field that can analyze artifacts and mm-hmm. make those interpretations on the run. That's very difficult. And that and becomes a difficult situation to handle when you're faced with those scheduling, right. um, those accelerated schedules, because it, it gets to a point occasionally when it's almost too much information coming in to be integrated properly. Um, and it's very hard to say this is a significant site based on no collection strategies right. um, that may or may not have had the advantage of any sort of systematic shovel testing to support those surface results. Um, And we will be back with this very fascinating discussion on collection strategies and the performance of uh, cultural resources work within the pipeline setting right after these words. Don't go away. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Dance Talk Radio has come to Voice America. Join host Tracy Marciniak and her celebrity guests every week for a show that takes you inside the world of dance. What's it like working with stars like Katy Perry and Taylor Swift? The experts share their stories and the -the behind-the-scenes secrets. Plus, inside tips to become a better dancer, instructor, or studio owner. Dance on over to the Voice America Variety Channel every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific for Dance Talk Radio. Families today face unique challenges. Marriage, parenting, and family forms have changed a lot in the last century. 
Family Matters with Dr. Virginia Collin will focus on building and maintaining healthy family relationships. We will discuss marriage, divorce, family mediation, parenting, lifestyles, and mental health, all kinds of family matters. Our show will feature guest experts and your participation, too. You can listen to Family Matters live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. On the morning of August 5, 1962, the world awoke to the shocking news that Marilyn Monroe, one of the biggest icons in Hollywood history, had been found dead. What really happened that night? Join Nina Bosky as she seeks to uncover both the life and tragic death of Marilyn Monroe and what keeps her so popular over 50 years later. Good Night Marilyn Radio, live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We are back with our third segment of this uh, broadcast on pipelines, archaeology, and compliance. Uh, we've been talking about the nature and the unique elements of doing pipeline archaeology uh, in the private sector. Um, one of the topics that is of a lot of interest, I know, to uh, professionals as well as lay people who are involved in uh, studying contemporary archaeological methods and practice is the business model and the model for doing private sector archaeology uh, in a pipeline environment. I think we have sort of transmitted the idea that um, it's a frantic operation in some ways. Uh, You have to mobilize very fast. You have to do the work very fast. You have to get your permits and certifications very fast. And the actual uh, collection of artifacts themselves and the recovery of information is to some degree changing as time rolls along. And I was going to ask Chris to sort of Uh, bring that to our experts here in terms of his own experience as to how all this has changed over the past 20 years. Chris? Uh, Thanks, Joe. Yes, I I think this is a topic that we really haven't covered very much on this uh, program to date with the other uh, interviews that we have uh, done and of which this will will form one part, uh, and that is specifically how does doing pipeline cultural resource studies integrate with a uh, with a business uh, now uh, as as you know both carol and i are uh, you know members of of consulting firms uh, but we do have the uh, you know uh, good information today uh, from Don Weir, uh, who has actually owned a business. And, um, Don, I'd like to really start with you uh, and maybe talk about uh, this 
whole uh, concept of, you know, first of all, the, you know, running a cultural resource management business and then how um, pipeline uh, studies get integrated into that, both in terms of their uh, benefits to a, uh, to a business, but also some of the challenges that a, a business may face by uh, being involved in uh, doing uh, studies for uh, pipelines and linear corridors. So uh, I'll turn it over to you, Don. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, as, as a, a business owner that's been, been doing pipelines since, you know, the, the 70s, um, you know, I have a long perspective on it. And, and you know, it used to be in, in the, the early years that we could plan on a, a major multi-state pipeline project probably every two years. Um, you know, so, so we didn't have a lot of, it wasn't a lot of competition for, for the rest of our clients. You know, we were, it, it was fairly easy to integrate, you know, a major pipeline into our, our business, you know, without hiring a lot of additional, you know, full-time people. Um, we would, you know, use one, one or two of our senior staff and, um, you know, and a lot of um, field techs, you know. And, and as time went on, um, you know, for example, this last year in 2014, we did seven major pipelines in, in one nice. year, which, which meant we had, you know, close to 300 field techs working last wow. year uh, on seven major projects. And, and they're very, you know, very intensive. Every one of those projects um, demanded of us that our crews be 10 hours a day, six days a week, and um, that they, in order to get these things done as quick as possible, you know. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's a good business. I mean, it, frankly, and I'll be very frank about it, it pays very well. But what you have to be very careful with is that it doesn't suck all your resources of your company and you ignore the rest of your clients. Because over over the years, you know, being a private sector consultant, it's been a boom and bust industry for us. You know, it it, it was a big push to, to get, you know, gas from the front range in, in Colorado to the east. Um, you know, we worked on on the Rex East project, um, and you know that that was a major project. Now, with, with the uh, developments in, in Pennsylvania and Ohio and the boom in, in North Dakota, it's another, you know, boom cycle. We're in the Midwest, and we seem to be in the middle of, you know, the back and crude coming from North Dakota going to east, and all the, all the uh, gas coming out of Pennsylvania and Ohio coming west, um, and a lot of it to be exported into Canada. So there's just a huge boom right now. And, and like I said, as, as a business owner, you know, I like to see that work, but it's very, very difficult on staff, and um, it'll gobble up your resources. So you have to think long and hard about it, and you have to be, have the ability to say no. You know, I, you know if you can't do the work, um, you have to say no because it doesn't do your company any good and doesn't do the industry any good if you fail. And, um, you know, these projects have very tight schedules, and you won't be in the industry very long if you don't deliver. 
Don, what is the cyclical element of this? When do you see these cycles rising with respect to the economy? How do you see and how do you plan for this sort of thing? Or well, can't you, you know, it, 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 it's typical of um, major infrastructure project. We, we tend to run, you know, before the economy and then after the economy. Right. I mean, these, these big projects take years to plan. And, you know, if they're midstream, um, and, the, and the economy starts to slow down, most of those projects will keep going. Uh, if you're on the front end of a project, like um, right now, uh, you know, with gas prices being very low, we saw, like I said, we, we, did, we were doing seven major projects last year, four of which have been canceled because of the low gas prices. So it, it's very sensitive to the economy. Uh, kind of out of phase with prosperity, in a sense. It's out of phase with prosperity. So, um, you know, I think the, you know, until gas prices start to rebound, then, you know, companies are going to have a hard time capitalizing these big major projects. And, and some of those projects that we saw were strictly storage projects, um, you know, storing the, the gas. Um, right now, there's an excess of gas, so... Um, it's, it's not a downtime, but it's not uh, as booming as it was last year. Chris, what are you saying? Well, uh, uh, I've actually been keeping fairly busy because uh, there has been a move to, you know, build infrastructure to start um, moving gas from the uh, Marcellus and, and, and the Utica. So, so I've been... Um, Actually, fairly busy with with large uh, with large projects over the last uh, few years. Um, I agree with Don that uh, that amongst my clients there is a, you know a cycle of periods of a lot of activity and then uh, then lulls. Uh, I think that one of the points that that Don raised uh, is very very important, and and that is the problem of and I like his his idea about, you know, having the courage to say no when, when you just can't take uh, anything else on because that's not good for the client. It's not good for you. It's also not good for the resources. You don't want to be in a situation where you're spread so thin you can't bring uh, the very best to the best, as I call them, uh, to, to a particular problem. Uh, and I'd like to maybe ask Carol if she could, um, you know, expand a little bit about upon a point that Don made, which I think is very important, and that is because of the complexity and scheduling of pipeline projects and all of the pieces that go into completing a cultural resource study, it, it, it really requires um, a, a lot of concentrated effort by very good professionals, and as we all know, uh, all of our firms, you know, have people that uh, fit that bill, uh, but there are limits to the numbers of people who are in our firms that can do this kind of work, and I guess the, the, the thing that Don raised, which I, I find very important, is, you know, how do you balance that need to have um, the best of the best applied to a problem uh, and still deal with uh, clients that have come to know and respect you and want you to be involved in their projects. You know, how do you balance, uh, as Don said, uh, a number of different 
companies coming and saying, gee, you're the person to help us permit this project. Uh, Carol, you've been in a, in a consulting firm, uh, you know, uh, for most of your career, I would imagine, as, as, of, as have I. How, how do you balance that, you know, the need to get the very best work you can in front of a client, uh, but then having to do that for multiple clients uh, at the same time? Well, I think first you go back to what Don did say. You have to have the ability to say no. Um, Secondly, um, with any given client, there are folks who work best with that client for whatever series of reasons. And one of the things that needs to be taken into consideration in developing those relationships is what is the effective field and staffing requirements for a particular client. There are those clients who say, I have worked with this project manager for 20 years and I'm comfortable with them. And if you know that's what that client is going to say, then what you try to do is develop a team that's going to be responsive to that request. Uh, But more than anything, People can change on a consulting team, uh, but it's really important that for the duration of a single project, you have continuity in your management team. The worst possible thing that can ever happen is that the project manager leaves um, because that causes disarray on many different levels. But if you can keep a project manager and the assistant project manager, the PI uh, for archaeology, the PI for architectural history, the geomorphologist involved in a project through its duration, then I think in many cases you've got You've got the game won. Now you get back to the question of how many of these specialty teams can you have on your staff? That's a different issue, and that gets back to Don's point, which is there are those instances when you have to say no. And on that note, we're going to have to go to our final break, and we will be back with our discussion on pipeline archaeology, the regulatory environment, and the business model that has been generated as a result of this work. We'll be right back after these words don't go away. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com What can you find on Get Real Radio? Well, quite honestly, who you really are. Join host James Robinson each week for a program designed to reveal more about yourself and your world through words of wisdom and profound guests. You'll discover more about the spiritual movement and how it can work with you and alert you to problems you may not be aware of. It will educate, titillate, and enlighten your mind. Get Real Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. This could end up being the best time of your week. Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even coworker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. 
Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things, and together you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we're here with our special guests on the uh, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and the uh, performance of archaeology within the context of pipeline work and the construction of largely natural gas linear projects, distribution systems that are crisscrossing the United States. And we have talked about the progress that has been made and the very unique challenges that are involved in performing this type of work under time constraints and planning constraints its association with environmental with uh, with economic cycles excuse me and how this work has to really sort of be adjusted to the cyclical nature of the economy and the supply and demand in the oil and gas market one of the things that has been very captivating to those of us who have actually experienced it over the course of 20 some odd years is the fact that the dynamic between the folks who build the lines and the ones who are involved in the compliance and uh, archaeology process is not necessarily a wedding that one would automatically assume would be very smooth. And uh, Chris and I have talked about this, and and Chris harkens back to a conference that was held in the mid-90s when we were all sort of getting our feet on the ground and trying to figure out, well, what are we supposed to do and how is it acceptable to the other party? In other words, what does a group of archaeologists have in common with folks who build pipelines, and uh, how does that sort of get resolved in an environment that's increasingly more regulatory and that involves a, a, a certain amount of monitoring and compliance. Uh, Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about that conference and what kind of uh, results and, and uh, developments occurred as a result of that? Well, the conference was held in Houston, as you know, Joe, and I believe you and Don and I were there. It was organized by uh, Zach Abiyad and Don Porter, who were then, I believe, of Texas Eastern. And the specific focus was to uh, begin a dialogue uh, that would uh, put uh, cultural resource practitioners and uh, uh, members of the pipeline industry, the project proponents, in the same room talking about how... um, you know, the needs of, of pipeline companies could be addressed because at, at that time rules were changing, uh, things were getting more complicated, and for non-professionals, uh, by that I mean non-cultural resource practitioners and archaeologists, it was often difficult to work out um, 
you know, exactly what needed to be done to comply with Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act. As Carol so aptly put in the beginning, even the FERC was developing its guidelines and uh, beginning the process of uh, organizing uh, the way they would like to approach uh, cultural resource management studies on pipelines. So uh, at that time, I think there was some uh, you know, uh, feeling one another out and, and trying to find out, uh, you know, what was the best way to assist the industry, uh, in, in meeting, uh, the goals of, uh, the National Historic Preservation Act. And, and I think that, you know, over time, what we've seen is, um, as we've indicated previously in this, uh, uh, discussion, you know, uh, a real development of good guidance and, um, you know, strong adherence to, uh, to the national, the spirit of the National Historic Preservation Act. And I'd like to start with Don because he was actually at that conference and maybe ask him and then Carol to reflect on how they've seen changes in the way they interact uh, with their clientele um, over the last 20 or 30 years uh, uh, when it comes to uh, cultural resource investigations on uh, pipeline projects. So, Don, how about a few thoughts from you? Sure. You know, what's what's very gratifying to, to me at looking at this over, you know, 20 or 30 years or even 40 years is that, you know, we're, the, the industry, the cultural resource industry, has matured not only you know, in our eyes as practitioners, but also in the eyes of the industry. You know, we're, we're now, you know, a very well-established, but one of several resources that, that um, you know, major companies are very used to dealing with, you know, um, especially that the big players in the pipeline industry, you know, generally want to be good corporate citizens. And they, they realize that, you know, they have to deal with uh, multiple resources and cultural resources are just one of them. And I've had, and as I said earlier, you know, I've had lots of, you know, major pipeline people say to me, you know, we want to do it right. You know, and we want to hire a company that will do it right because it doesn't do us any good to, 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 to get in trouble you know, at the back end of this thing because it'll cost us a lot of money. We'd rather do it right, you know, from day one and, you know, treat the resources as they should be done. And, and that's, that's very gratifying to me, you know, as, as somebody that's actually probably, you know, approaching the end of their career and doing this, is that it, it's, it's mature enough, you know, to, that uh, companies respect us and we respect them. You know, it's no longer adversarial. I, I think, what you know, what... So sometimes when we, I see the frustration is that if you have a non-regulated pipeline who wants to be a good corporate citizen, you know, they, they have a difficult time, you know, getting, you know, other agencies to, to cooperate with them. Um, and so a lot of them, you know, go, go, go through the process anyways, and you've got to be thankful for that because, you know, the resources are being dealt with in an appropriate way. Carol? When, when I first started in pipelines, though low many moons ago, um, what I would often hear from um, the engineers or the construction specialists, construction managers in particular, were, you guys, you guys, 
the archaeologists or the archies are going to hold us up because you're going to be out there digging with spoons. Um, <laughs> over time, I think that everybody reached a mutual understanding that we were all pointed to the right to the same goal: get the pipeline done in an efficient manner without harming the resources any more than was absolutely necessary. And there was a lot of education on the part of the archaeologists with regard to the limitations that the pipeliners were facing. And there was a lot of education on the part of the pipeliners as to what we actually did and what our timing limitations were. Um, once you put those two groups together working for a mutual goal, uh, and you also involved the FERC, and you involved the State Historic Preservation Offices, and you began to involve the tribal governments as well, I think what you began to see was the evolution of very positive collaborations on everyone's part. But in the initial years, it was a little mm, iffy, and then it got increasingly better. Uh, and much of that has to do with the fact that the FERC had the wherewithal to put together a series of guidelines that everybody could live with. Chris, we only have 30 seconds left. Uh, some final thoughts from you? Well, I, I, I think what I've heard today is, um, you know, what I personally feel, and I find it very gratifying that, that all of us on the call uh, find uh, working uh, with the FERC, uh, working with our pipeline clients, uh, incredibly uh, exhilarating. Uh, I think all of us really enjoy our clients. We enjoy working with pipelines, and I think we enjoy working with um, the FERC because all of these entities uh, really sponsor uh, good cultural resources compliance. And on that note, I want to thank my special guests, my co-host Chris Bergman uh, and my uh, compadres and good friends Carol Weed and Don Weir. And thank you so much for participating in this discussion. And we will be back again next time with another program. And stay tuned for the five-part series on pipeline archaeology, which will probably be broadcast within the next two months. So thank you. And until next time, stay well. And as we said before, the past is the key to the future. See you next time. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.